Open up your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 42 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 13, 24 to 42. Well, it's that time of year, or I should say of years, election season is upon us. I feel like we didn't leave the last one. I don't know about you. I feel like it has stayed upon us all this time. But here we are in yet another season where people are vying for media attention. People are vying for your eyeballs. They want your attention. They want your dollars. They want ultimately your vote. We're going to see candidates going to places they've never been before. Diners and cafes in Iowa and New Hampshire. And places they won't go again until four years from now till they show up in the same diners in Iowa and New Hampshire. All to get your vote. We'll see ad after ad after ad after ad after ad inundating us with the message of how they're going to lead the next four years if you choose me. If you choose me. We have another year of this, by the way. I know it feels like, not only did we just leave the last one, I know it probably feels like. We've been in this for the last, surely we're coming up on the election now, are we not? No? We have another year of this until November of next year. And in November, people all across the country will walk into the voting booth and they will cast their vote. And behind many votes being cast is hope. Lots and lots and lots of hope. As they mark that little box, color in that little bubble, or maybe even punch out. We shouldn't do punch outs anymore, apparently, I don't think, but... Whatever they do to cast their vote, behind it is lots and lots and lots of hope. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, there's hope behind every vote that's cast. Maybe the next four years will change everything for the good. Maybe everything by the end of the next four years will be much, much, much better. Many will be cast with so much hope. We've been looking at the culture's reaction to Jesus in Matthew 11 and 12. And now we're in chapter 13 where Jesus is basically giving us eight parables, almost in rapid succession. And we know that Jesus is bringing people the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, but in spite of the power that he has displayed in front of them, in spite of the fact that he has changed withered hands and he has raised the dead and he has cured the lepers, in spite of the many wondrous deeds that he's done, people are still unsure of him. Some people are just flat out rejecting him. And yet there is still a very small contingency of people that are buying into his teaching, that want to be his disciples, and that are following him with everything that they have. 
So Jesus is going to help us understand in this passage the kingdoms that are present in our world right now. And it will help us, I think, understand the world around us. Let's read our scripture text this morning, Matthew 13, 24 to 43. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the, garden, all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the seed, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for ears to hear. For hearts to understand. For minds and to have attention, for eyes to see what you are doing in this world, what your text means and how it applies to our lives as we think about the moment that we're in culturally. Pray that you would help it, this text, to apply to our lives, that we may be different because we've encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 13, all of the parables 
that Jesus is telling have something to do with the citizens of the kingdom that Christ is establishing. All of them have to do with his citizens, with his citizens that he's establishing. Now remember, the disciples and virtually all of the Jews are anticipating that God's Messiah is going to come in and drive out the Romans. That he is going to establish what I'm going to call a political kingdom. That he's going to take David's throne, he's going to physically sit on it in Jerusalem, and he is going to rule the land and drive out the Roman oppression. And so even to this very day, For some Jews, this is a tremendous point of contention about Jesus as Messiah, is that he didn't set up an earthly kingdom in the here and now. This is one of the reasons they reject him out of hand. They don't really have a category. The first century doesn't, and even Jews today, a category for the kingdom that Jesus is actually setting up. A kingdom where he will first reign in the hearts of, of men and women through faith in the atonement and resurrection. They don't really have that kind of thought process. That's not how they saw the Messiah. And this is the kingdom, though. The kingdom that Jesus is setting up is the kingdom that we are still in to this very day. That's the one we're living in right now. So though they were told in the book of Jeremiah and many other prophets that there was going to be a period where God would write His law on their hearts, that He would turn them back to Him, that He would be their God and they would be His people, this still isn't the kind of kingdom that they were expecting. That's not really the kind of kingdom they wanted, more or less. But Jesus is explaining to them the kingdom that He is actually setting up in a series of parables. Now, this, the parables that we'll be looking at this morning really give us insight into the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. He's going to explain that there will be a time, there will be time between His established kingdom, the beginning of it, and the end where He will eradicate the wicked. This is that time that he's speaking about, the time that we're living in now, that the Jews didn't fully understand. They couldn't wrap their mind around. So he's going to tell them the kingdom of God is going to flourish with two distinct people groups in the world. Those that are of his kingdom and those that aren't. Truthfully, All the parables in chapter 13 could all be taught at one time. They could all be preached together because each one of them covers a different facet of life inside Christ's kingdom. So all of them are laced together. All of them are a good bit similar, but also all of them are a little bit different too. This morning I want to make just two observations in the the text with one in each parable with what this passage says about God's kingdom as it is established through Christ. So first, God's kingdom established through Christ will grow in spite of opposition. God's kingdom established through Christ will grow in spite of opposition. So our text this morning looks really long, and indeed it is kind of long, 
but it's really due to a repetition of the parable in one part of the passage and the other. We have the parable of the weeds. If you look in uh, verses 24 to 30, there's the parable there. And then the explanation of the parable in 36 to 43. Now, these two pieces of text are virtually identical in that Jesus really just he doesn't leave it up to our imagination to interpret. He just tells us what it means there in 36 to 43. So that's where we'll spend most of our time when we understand this passage. But there Jesus gives seven images of the kingdom of heaven in the parable. There in verses 24 to 30. And in 37 to 39, he explains what all seven of those images are. And then he explains how they function. There is one big difference between the two sections, though. You probably see it there in verse 36. There's one massive difference, and that is the location. Where he tells the parable and the meaning of the parable. That actually ends up mattering a good deal. You'll see in verse 24, he's continuing to teach the crowds in parables. This is just his serial parables as he, as he goes about just throwing them out there for the crowds. And we found out last week that he taught the crowd in parables. In fact, the disciples come up to him in verse 10 and they ask him, why do you teach the crowds in parables? Because they're confusing. Nobody understands them. And so he teaches the crowd in parables. And then Matthew tells us today, this morning, he only taught the crowds in parables. He doesn't teach them anything else. He teaches them only in parables. But now in verse 36, he goes away from the crowd He goes into a house, presumably in Capernaum. This may have been his house, or it may have been a house of one of his disciples. And his disciples are clearly with him. So the explanation of the parable, the plain language of the meaning of the parable, is given only to the disciples. It's not given to the crowd. It's not given to the masses. Last week, Jesus explained why he does this. And we talked at length about why he does this. And you can go back and listen to last week if you want to think more on that. But this week, Matthew gives us a comment in verses 34 and 35, which is particularly interesting. Look there in verse 34. He says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's quoting here a fulfillment of the prophet. This is in Psalm 78, verse 2. That's where that reference comes from. And this is a psalm, a psalm of Asaph. Now, many may not be familiar with Asaph, but Matthew alludes to him as a prophet, calls him a prophet here. It's a psalm of Asaph where Asaph goes back through and traces Israel's history. He goes back through and, and basically traces all of Israel's history up to the present moment. And, but the difference with, with Asaph's psalm is that he actually explains the spiritual realities behind what God was doing in history. So you don't have to guess what God was doing or what God was thinking or what God was feeling during those times. Asaph in Psalm 78 basically just explains it to you there. And so Matthew tells us, that Jesus is fulfilling this very same thing by speaking to the crowd in parables. He is uttering what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, hidden in the mind of God. As Asaph is doing in Psalm 78, talking about what God is, is going through and what he's doing and why he's doing it there, 
Here, Jesus is also uttering mysteries that have been hidden since the foundation of the world, giving you a peek, if you will, into the mind of God. In this case, Jesus is talking about God's kingdom being established. Well, that's what the entire Old Testament story is about. God establishing his kingdom on earth. But Jesus is not only revealing God's kingdom, but he's revealing the mystery that has been hidden since the foundation of the world, namely how God's kingdom would be established. That was the mystery. No one questioned whether or not God was on the beat establishing his kingdom in this world. No. The question was, how is he going to put all these wicked people under his thumb? How, it, it really seems like wickedness is running rampant. How is God really going to come in and clear his throat and set the standard for everybody? How is that actually going to happen? Well, Jesus is going to tell his disciples in the next few verses, in verses 37 and 41, first he's going to tell them that the one that's populating the kingdom with his servants, and then ultimately the one who will sit on Yahweh's throne and judge the nations at the end of time, who is that? That's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to do that. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God would come and establish God's kingdom once and for all by dying for His people to save them from their sins. This is the mystery hidden from the foundation of the world. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the hidden mystery is, surprise, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man figure from Daniel 7. And He is right now Establishing God's kingdom once and for all. However, the people are rejecting it. The people as a whole reject Jesus the Messiah. We saw last week that this is expected because Jesus' parables have a twofold purpose. He tells them in verse 11, they reveal to those uh, whom it has been given to know the secrets and they make it obscure. They judge the ones for whom those secrets, those mysteries, ha they have not been given to know. And so in our passage this morning, he leaves the crowd and he goes into the house and his disciples follow him and they ask him for the meaning. And there to his disciples, he explains to them the deeper realities of this parable. So in this parable, what happens? The sower goes out to sow in, and he throws seed in his field. And in the middle of the night, someone comes in and sows seed in amongst the wheat. Now, in the agricultural community that they're growing up in, this probably makes a ton of sense. For us who haven't grown a crop in all of our lives, some of this is a little bit lost on us, okay? But there's a reason he uses a wheat field as an example. 
uh, because it makes a good deal of sense in the parable. Uh, there is a, obviously the wheat crop that people would sow, but there is a weed called darnel, and it looks just like wheat. A weed that looks just like wheat. <laughs> in fact, it even looks so much like wheat, it has what appears to be, at least at the beginning, a head of grain on the top of this little wheat crop. And it's green. And it, as wheat starts off with this little green color to it, 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 it has the appearance of wheat in every way. The only way to tell the difference between the wheat and the weed is to wait. There's another weed, weed, wait. I think I got it down. Um, the only way to tell what is wheat and what is weed is to wait until it finally comes to fruition and starts bearing fruit, until that head of grain turns a different color. And once the wheat turns a different color, it's very easy to tell which one is wheat and which one is darnel, which one is weed. The darnel continues to stay that same weed-like color. So the servants come to the master after the wheat is grown, or after the, they see that there are weeds in the garden or in the field, and they ask him, well, master, did you not sow good seeds there in verse 27? Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now, this is the overriding question of the passage. This is the question actually in some ways that we are all dealing with right now. Where is Jesus in the midst of all this? As his kingdom is, shouldn't it have come to fruition by now? It's been uh, 2,000 years or some. Where, where is he? Why hasn't he returned? Where, where is Jesus? In some capacity, we're all wrestling with this question that the servants come to him and ask, if this is good seed, why are there weeds? Now, this question is a direct challenge to the kingdom that he's establishing, that Jesus is establishing, that he's putting down. Doesn't the presence of Jesus' kingdom mean that there should be no other contenders? I mean, doesn't it mean that all the rest should be driven out of the field? In his explanation, the master sets out to explain how the weeds got there and what he aims to do about it. And so there are seven main images of the parable that he has to explain. We're going to go straight through them. First is in verse 37 where he says the one who sows the good seed, he says that's the Son of Man. That's Jesus Himself. He's the sower. He says the field, in verse 38, is the world. Good seed, there in 38 also, are the sons of the kingdom. Now last week we saw that the seed that was thrown out was the word of the kingdom, the gospel, the good news. But in a different parable, the seed has different meaning. So here the seed is the son, are the sons of the kingdom. Weeds, he says, are sons of the evil one. Uh, there in verse 39, he says, The enemy who sowed them, he is the devil. Uh, there in verse 39 as well, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now, the point of this parable, as Jesus explains it to the disciples, is that God will continue to mediate the kingdom through Christ while the world is populated with both saints and and sinners. Now, this is actually quite a significant revelation if they actually understand it. 
It means that the kingdom that they're looking for, the kingdom that they're brimming with expectation for, is still yet to come. In fact, even for us, it's still yet to come. That we're still looking for it. But the first aspect of this that we have to wrap our minds around is that there are children of the devil sown in the world just as there are sons and daughters of the kingdom sown in the world. There are ones that he told us about in the last parable. He called them the sons of he calls them the sons of the evil one. Here, these are the ones in the last uh, passage where that are the ones to whom the secret of God's Messiah has not been given. And they're largely in the crowds that he is teaching in parables. This is probably the same group of people that at the end of this whole run in Matthew 13 that will be sitting there as Jesus does his miracles and his teaching and they're all looking at each other going, isn't this just Joseph and Mary's boy? I saw him grow up. I changed his diaper. I know who he is. I see his sisters. They're right here with us. Aren't his brothers James and Judas? This is Jesus' answer to the servants in the parable who ask, how does your seed have weeds? How, if your seed is good, why does it have weeds in it? The answer is, they're not my seeds. They're not of me. In John 8, 44, he tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So the world has mixed in subjects of Jesus Christ and subjects of Satan. Notice that he doesn't say the field is the church. That is not what he says there. The field is the church. Now some have continued and will continue even after this. Um, to argue uh, using this passage to argue against the process of what we call church discipline that Jesus is going to outline for us. He'll talk about it in Matthew chapter 18. They argue using this passage uh, against church discipline. Church discipline is a process where, uh, um, whereby an individual that has professed to be a Christian and has been made a member of a church demonstrates and continues to demonstrate through his sin and failure to come to repentance that he is not a believer. Jesus is going to tell us that the church is responsible to remove him. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now some push back against this and because of the parable of the weeds and they say, look, they're, they're going to be mixed together. They're just going to be all a part of one group and Jesus is going to sort it out in the end. We're not the ones to be the judge. But Jesus doesn't say the field is the church. The field is the world. We as his church body are to remain distinct from the world. In the world and not of the world in regards to our actions. The world is not to be mixed in with the church in its membership. So tonight... At our, our members meeting, which is a meeting for members to come together, part of what we will do, in addition to many other things, is we'll vote on two membership candidates. We will read their written testimony out loud. We will read their explanation of the gospel that they profess faith in. We will hear 
how their salvation has, le- has led and is leading to their sanctification, and then we will vote. Now, we're not making them Christians. That's not what we're doing. Our vote doesn't mean they are Christians or they are not. We are simply validating what we see in their life and that's reflected on the page before us that what we see is what we would expect of a Christian. That's what we think of when we think of a Christian. These people look like Christians to us. And that's what our vote means. Now, on the other side of that, should there ever be a case of church discipline that's ever brought up in a congregational meeting, the church would exercise judgment in the other direction. So when and if a time comes up where someone is presented who is lacking in repentance and does not exhibit the fruit of repentance in their life, he or she refuses to repent in spite of many, many attempts and clear calls to bring them back, the church is responsible to vote the other way. The church is not taking away someone's salvation in doing that. That's not what they're saying. But they're removing them from membership as a clear marker to the rest of the world. We can no longer affirm this person's faith as a true follower of Jesus. Now, they may be, but they are not evidencing or giving any kind of evidence of their faith, in spite of clear and repeated warnings to repent of sin. But Jesus is going to make it clear in Matthew that though this is what the church can and will do to make a distinction between weed and wheat, the world itself will have the two mixed in. There will be people of the church and there will be people of the world. There will be seeds of Christ and there will be seeds of Satan. What that means is that you will be living next door to and working next to, in the next cubicle to, people that are children of the devil. You may share the gospel with them and it just falls on deaf ears. And in spite of repeated attempts at evangelism, they simply will not understand because they do not have ears to hear. These, because they are sons of the devil, are natural enemies to the cross of Christ. They believe the cross is foolishness. To them, Christians are stodgy, foolish idiots who believe in preposterous fairy tales. Like Jonah, like Adam and Eve, Daniel and the lion's den, Noah and the flood, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and parting the waters, come on. And most of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The weed is a supernatural counterpart. One's just as much born of Satan as those born of the Spirit of God. But in spite of this, Jesus, he says, will have his crop. Jesus will have his harvest. So God's kingdom, established through Christ, will grow in spite of opposition. Second thing I want you to see is God's kingdom, established through Christ, will grow in spite of small beginnings. 
There are two other parables in this passage, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, and both of which are saying essentially the same thing. In verse 31, Jesus relates the kingdom of heaven first to a mustard seed, and then he gives something of an interpretation in verse 32, that the mustard seed, though initially small, grows into a large garden plant, so large by comparison to its seed that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, his, his point is not necessarily to point out how big the kingdom will become, because there are certainly bigger trees out there than the mustard bush, shrub, whatever you want to call it. His point is the meager beginning of the kingdom that he is establishing. In chapter 13 of Matthew, there will not be many people that follow Jesus. We will not see many people that are in and bought in as his disciples. In fact, so far in the passage, they all fit into one house. In fact, if you've ever seen the houses over there, don't think rooms like this. Don't think houses like you live in. Tiny, tiny, tiny. Tiny houses. All of his disciples that are following him and get his teaching and understand his parables and are following him are all inside that room, and one of them is a traitor. And in verse 33, he tells a short parable that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. A woman puts yeast in three measures of flour. The amount of flour that Jesus mentions here, which is kind of important, is roughly 35 liters of flour. And we don't necessarily think in those categories, but a really large vat of flour. Uh, They would call this a bushel of flour. So this woman hides this small amount of yeast in the flour, and eventually what happens? The whole bushel becomes permeated with the yeast. Small amount of yeast grows and permeates the entire lump. And the point here is virtually identical to the one that came before it. Though the kingdom of heaven will have small beginnings, it will eventually become mature over time, and it will produce fruit until it is quite mature. See, gradually, as people come to submit themselves to Jesus Christ as King, what do they do? They bear fruit. As they come to bow their hearts before the King of Kings, they bear fruit in their lives. They repent of their sin. The yeast slowly permeates the flower. The mustard seed slowly begins to blossom to maturity. God's kingdom, established through Christ, will grow in spite of small beginnings. The point of this passage as a whole, though it's a lot of text, is is really pretty easy to grasp. It's really pretty simple. There is opposition to the kingdom of heaven. First, there are people There are satanic weeds as opposition to the kingdom of God. Then there is the size that's in opposition to the kingdom of God. I mean, can really, honestly, can 12 men who are receiving and following and believing, can they really impact the world as a whole? Can the message that's proclaimed to them and the understanding that's coming to them right then in this room, can that really change the whole world? This whole passage with all three parables is telling us that the kingdom of God will win in spite of opposition. 
The kingdom of God will win in spite of opposition. This is the original grassroots campaign. You understand that? This is the original grassroots campaign. Jesus tells his disciples on the one hand that he is sending them out as sheep amidst wolves. That's the wheat amongst the tares. He not only tells them that, he also tells them, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. Wheat amongst tares. But then he also tells them on the other hand, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. As we take the gospel to the world, what should we expect? So we as a church body take the gospel to the world. And what I mean by that is just as simple as a work conversation, as simple as a conversation at school, as simple as preaching in a church, as simple as sharing the gospel with your next door neighbor and bringing them over to your house for lunch and talking about what you do and what you believe. When we take the gospel to the, the world, what should we expect? We should expect in our faithful proclamation of the gospel over time for it to have a sanctifying impact on the children of the kingdom. We should expect that some will be called to repentance and they will believe. We should expect some to reject and turn away and never want to be our friend ever again. There are also some ways that this passage informs the way we think as a church about the world around us. It appears as though right now we are living in two realities simultaneously. Doesn't it? It feels as though, and we're told often, that we're living in two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Christ that we're living in as Christians, and then we have the kingdom of man that we're living in. That's the way it's often described to us. But In some ways, that's helpful and true, but in other ways, it's not true at all. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're living in the kingdom of Christ, period. Over what square inch of this world could the kingdom of man say, that is mine? Nothing. He owns it all. The field is all His. All of it is his. So then, let's ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to say through these parables to his disciples that would apply to us? Well, first, we have to know that Jesus has established his kingdom. He, point blank, has established his kingdom. Now, on the one hand, it is spiritual, which is not what the disciples were expecting when they when he came. They weren't expecting a spiritual kingdom and that is first and foremost what he has established. But it is also political. He has established a political kingdom too which is what they wanted but they didn't understand exactly how that would come about. What do I mean he's established a political kingdom? He is right now turning the hearts of men to what? To allegiance to him. Above everything else. Above family. Above country. Above brothers and sisters. Above friends. Above everything else. 
above everything that you've ever known. He's right now in the midst of us turning the hearts of people toward him in allegiance. It started with just 12 men in a room and it was in Rome before they died. Second, if we're living in Christ's kingdom and we understand that, that our hearts have been turned and our allegiance is given solely to him, he comes before, under, and through all things then why do worldly politics whip us up into a frenzy? Why are we so concerned and so frustrated to the point of anger over what goes on in Washington, D.C.? Why, if we belong to the kingdom of Christ, are we so concerned with what other people do. What does it testify about us that we're so worried about what goes on? What happens if the other side wins? Can you answer that? What happens? Christ is still on the throne. That's what happens. If we're living in the, in the kingdom of Christ that he has established, that politically our hearts have been aligned with him, have been turned, we are totally bought in. Why do we put so much hope in politicians? To the point where we would fly off in a blind rage to someone that disagrees with us. To the point that our holidays with our families would become very awkward based on political alliances. Why? If our heart is aligned with Christ, then we should understand any political solution that's brought to us is temporary at best and pagan at worst. Submitting to Christ is the only solution. It's the only thing that will suffice. How will the nation as a whole, if we're so concerned with it, how will they, they actually turn and, and repent and, and change their behaviors? How will that even happen? It won't happen by political solutions. No way. It will be, happen because they, their hearts are aligned with Christ. It will happen because they believe the gospel. That's the solution. So for us, what does that mean? We quit acting and looking like weeds who get nervous and frustrated to the point of even profanity. We lash out with our keyboards on Facebook or whatever it is we do. And we panic over what happens in the world, over future events, over events we cannot control. Instead, we should remain above the fray. We should remain calm in how we engage in political discourse. You can be passionate. You can be convinced. You can be right. You can point, people, point out people's errors. But you can also do so in love. You can also do so in kindness. You can also do so without putting your hope in a candidate. We can continue to work as a church body to make sure that we demonstrate 
Christ's kingdom and the kingdom that we belong to in both word and deed. And so what that means ultimately is that we can relax. Isn't that great? We can relax. Just calm down. We can relax and we can trust. We can do our work as Christians and leave the results to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that as the political season comes about and as, it, as we continue to hear ads and we continue to think about how we're going to vote or whatever we're going to do or as we continue to think about how we engage our neighbors or talk to them about political discourse as that's going to be ramped up shortly over the next year. Pray that our hearts would be bought in to your kingdom above all else. That it would show in our personality as we talk about politics. As we talk about anything. That the people that would come away from the conversation going, his heart is somewhere else. Her heart is clearly somewhere else. They're at peace in the midst of turmoil, and I want to know why. Pray that that would bear fruit in people's lives. It would bear fruit in the lives of the members of this church as we go out, as we seek to engage people, not on the grounds of politics, but the politics of the kingdom. As we seek to spread your fame around the earth. Pray that that would be our call. That we would remember that you break the bow and bend the spear and tell the wars to cease. That you are the mighty one of Israel. And that you are on our side. In Jesus' name.